Welcome to a podcast with Aaron Schultz. Men's mental health matters. Live life with an outback mind. Thanks so much for joining in, episode 229. Now, uh, really uh, blessed to have uh, psychiatrist Dr. Mark Cross on with me today. With me today, men's mental health does matter, and um, Dr. Cross. Um, has had a, an incredible journey personally. Um, he's openly gay. Uh, he's married to a, a lovely gentleman by the name of John, has two boys, and um, he had to, uh, I suppose, undergo lots of uh, trauma as a, as a young man coming through, um, you know, being gay, I, I suppose, and um, that uh, had a tremendous effect on his own mental health. Uh, now he's very passionate to be able to help others. Um, to be able to recover and also, you know, uh, I suppose showcase people that have had a lived experience to be able to speak out. Um, that's the trap I think that we have, um, you know, really, and that's the Achilles heel with uh, the mental health challenges that many people have is where we're not, I suppose, able to be heard or appreciated or, uh, you know, acknowledged for who we actually are. Everyone's got a unique gift in this lifetime. We can really flip the, the thinking of, uh, of mental health and the culture around mental health in Australia if we actually help people tap into their passion uh, and be creative and do the things that their heart's saying to do, you know. We're, we're getting caught up in um, you know, all the judgments and uh, all the uh, expectations of life and that's taking us away from our purpose and our, and our real true nature. And uh, you know, Mark's testament to that, that uh, if you stay true to who you are, you know, you come out the other side of it and, uh, and you know, do some amazing work. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk long and deep about his own journey today, but also some of the people that he's had, um, uh, I suppose, relationships with that have had lived experience and how that's actually improved their lives. And, you know, uh, I'm sure this is going to resonate with lots of people out there. So please uh, share it far and wide. If you'd like to send me some feedback, please uh, do at support.outbackmind.org.au. Jump on the website, outbackmind.org.au, for some information about us. Thanks. G'day, Mark. How are you? Hey, nice to speak to you, Aaron. That's Friday, so I'm good, thanks. We, we just had a pretty deep conversation before we got on uh, <laughs> online here, but uh, geez, Mark, I, um, I'm so grateful for the chat and, and for your work and, uh, you know, what you're doing to be able to, you know, try and support you know, men, uh, but also, you know, everyone in, in general in, in Australia and, um, you know, I just, uh, I've been fascinated by, uh, by your journey from what I've seen of it so far and, you um, Know, coming at from a from a clinical perspective, but also you know flipping it around the other way to sort of appreciate and value people that have had lived experience, I think is uh, is tremendous. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for that, and thanks for the invite. But you know, you mentioned the journey. I mean, uh, you know, age is a number, right? But I'm 58 this year, so I think a great a great way to be older is also you've got experience, acknowledge that, and actually some things you can let go, right? So, and also I, I want to be my whole person when I'm at work and it, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to do that. So when you are able to be your whole self when you're working, um, that makes you feel better and engages people more mm. as well. Yes. Yes, well, geez, I tell you, 
you'd be you'd be um, certainly uh, the right person to speak to about that because I reckon uh, as a young fellow you probably weren't able to be your whole self. No, and it's a it's a weird thing when you when well we just had World Pride and Mardi Gras and it's been a wonderful time and in fact a lot of people are now actually depressed that it's all over because it was just a glorious time in Sydney right mm. and we we marched with our sons and their mothers on Sunday the World Pride Bridge March and it was just such an amazing feeling to be able to do that and how far we've come mm. but when you talk to to people about their sexuality or coming out, there's never one com- time coming out, right? There's a constant lifelong coming out in a way. So you, there's always moments in time when you go, okay, then I'm more open, I feel better about embracing this fully, um, if that makes sense. It's like, you know, yes, you come out to friends and you come out to family, then you come out to people at work and then finally for me, I've been able to go, and it's through writing, you can't really hide anything <laughs> you've written it out there. Um, you, you, you open generally, and it's taken decades to get to this point, and it's a wonderful point to have got to. Tell me, you know, when you were sort of coming through, um, like in, into your teenage years and into adult life, were you quite unsure, obviously, about your, your role in life and also the direction you wanted to take? My role, it was in, it's interesting, I suppose I've always been in, interested in, in biology and medicine and the shapings of the human body and mind. I was asked this recently at an interview, you know, what made you go into medicine? I was playing doctors and nurses and with a girlfriend of mine who's actually become a doctor too and we, we did swap roles. It wasn't just, you know, hey, I'm playing the doctor each time. <laughs> I was even aware back then of gender stuff. Um, and she's gone to America. We caught up recently, you know, we're 40 years after school now and laughed and gone, wow, look back then. We, we definitely knew what we wanted to be. But in terms of being a person, I knew it was different from bloody four, mm-hmm. age four, five, right? And um, that's, that was difficult for me to try and think about, you know, how you grow up knowing you're different, knowing that you're not going to manage that stereotypical masculine macho ideal, even though it was really drummed into one, especially when I grew up in South Africa, right? Talk about Australia too, it was that macho ideal. We were the chosen race too, so being white Mm. came with a big uh, push to be that true Aryan you know, it was a whole lot of Nazi stuff in, in that as well, uh, a whole lot of fascism in how I was brought up. And you you were expected to be that certain ideal. And, you know, homosexuality was not only illegal when I grew up. So when I went to medical school, it was a mental illness. So it was a medical condition. So that didn't help me come out even then, even in my early 20s. That was in South Africa, and um, probably similar similar ethos to Australia. So, so you're saying like if you are openly gay or um, in that environment, they they treat as having a mental illness. Yes, it was not something. It was not something I, I could have done. Mm. It was still considered a an illness, and there was a a professor actually, a couple of professors at university started coming out more in the late eighties, early nineties. And we had a board of faculty meeting. So even at medical school, I mean, I wasn't a great student. You know, I used to be quite involved politically. 
and I was on the Medical Student Association board. And I was invited to this board of faculty meeting in 1990. I was a final year student. So the next year I was going to be a doctorate. And it was to discuss HIV and AIDS. And the then professor of surgery, who is an asshole, <laughs> stood up and said it was God's gift to homosexuality. This was at a board of faculty meeting in the University of Cape Town, 1990. Uh, so even even then, it was still, that didn't help me come out, no. Mm. Mm, amazing. Yeah, geez, I, like you're a little bit older than me, but I... I um, I saw all that, uh, you know, coming through. As I mentioned, uh, you know, coming from a regional country town, there were some guys that were, were, you know, quite obviously gay, but they got slandered, you know, considerably, and, and a lot of those guys never made it to being an adult. You know, they, they took their lives uh, back in the day, and, um, um, you know, we've certainly come a long way, but I think there's still a long way to go, possibly. It, it, it is. There is a long way to go, but actually... From the Australian perspective, for instance, when we moved here from London in 2005, there was a Royal Commission into LGBTQ uh, laws, and there were 86 points of discrimination still in the law books at that stage in Australia, one of which was uh, same-sex couples couldn't adopt kids. That only changed in 2011. Mm. And we couldn't buy a house together, so the, the government always knows how much money they can make out of you, right? So two men buying a house at that stage, you had to pay double stamp duty, mm. things like that. Oh, it was even in, in recent memory. So, um, and I couldn't bring John, my husband, on my working visa, my um, 457 visa. I could bring my mother, she was quite keen, but I couldn't bring... I couldn't bring my husband, and uh, he luckily was just at the age he could get a working holiday visa at that stage. That was 2005. Mm. We were in the paper, actually. We met someone out and uh, wrote an article about it. Um, and, I, and I was in medical recruitment trying to recruit psychiatrists to a regional hospital where I've worked for a long time, Liverpool, Campbelltown, South West Sydney, mm. counts as re regional area. And two of the doctors wouldn't come through because they couldn't bring their... Partners. Partners, jeez, unreal. When was it when it was more uh, recognised in Australia? What year? Well, th things have changed. So even in Queensland, the panic defences, that only changed, don't quote me again. You know, I, I give talks to patient groups or whatever, the young ones sit there with Google and they check everything I say. So I always <laughs> look at them, I go, hey, you know, I think it's this time, can you just check for me? Um, <laughs> But it, that, that, I think, only changed in 2017 near the marriage equality. But again, coming, and this is why it's so important for the law to change and equality and equity to be, you know, important. You talk about prevention of things. Mm. Young men have definitely killed themselves less often than before since mm. marriage equality. It's made a huge difference yes. uh, if you look at figures, uh, you know, in terms of guys identifying in, in terms of their sexuality. But the, the sad thing, too, just linked to what you were saying in regional towns, people can often get marked as gay when they're not, just because they're, they're, they're seen as, you know, quote, effeminate. Mm. So I, I have two patients and two friends who've always loved expressing uh, more female versions of themselves. 
but they're absolutely straight in terms of their sexuality. Mm. And people get confused between the gender expression and sexuality. Uh, and then people are, you know, bullied and targeted when they're actually not even gay. That That's another sad thing about how people make decisions in their heads, right? Mm. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, look, you know, a lot of that, that was not our fault. You know, being brought up in, in regional areas, we were taught to be judgmental, you know, uh, rather than compassionate and curious. And um, uh, we'd label really quickly without actually knowing, uh, you know, anything deeper. And it does still go on. But I think as, as we've sort of discussed, we've come quite a way, but we've still got a long way to go. And um, uh, yeah, you know, there is a stoic uh, mindset in, um, in many regional areas due to the masculinity of some sports and so forth, which, you know, I think is okay, but certainly uh, we've got to be able to provide education, um, you know, in the, in the environments um, where there's critical mass so people can actually um, start to get awareness and understanding and, you know, intergenerationally we can start to, to you know, hopefully facilitate more change. Yes, and, you know, with the sport, I mean... Regional towns, I think, have shifted so much often. I mean, there was that lovely SBS um, uh, documentary series. Um, oh, I can't remember. It's, it's like a Australian small towns. Mm. And there was this uh, town in Queensland near Toowoomba, and I, can't, I think it was Toowoomba, actually, but again, oh, man, I, I need to fact-check <laughs> sometimes. But the bowls club was doing badly. And so they decided to start drag shows in the bowling club in this small regional town in Queensland. <laughs> and it has become famous now and it's gelled the community together because it's about community. That's the thing in regional and uh, towns, right? Yes. You've got such wonderful community. Yes, culture needs to change. Yes, some of the sport sort of culture absolutely needs to change. But... When, when people do think about these things and support each other, I think that's amazing. Yes, agree. And, and it's, it's amazing too because once one or two start to be curious and they'll, uh, they'll be open to that sort of stuff, then the rest sort of follow, you know. Uh, and uh, that's tremendous to see. I'll, I'll definitely um, have a bit of a look at that myself. But, you know, my, my um, traditional area uh, where I'm from back in Victoria has quite, you know, changed quite a bit. There's still uh, still a bit to go there, but uh, you know there is um, there is a process uh, you know evolving and, and coming through, and um, you know I just think uh, we're at a pivotal moment in time and humanity to be able to you know really um, shift gears now and start to open up to our full purpose and potential as humans, rather than being stuck in these limited belief systems that a lot of us have been stuck in for many years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's also happened to, like, we've, there's been a lot of trauma in, in our lives which has been carried through, like dad's been to war or grandpa's been to war, and a lot of that, uh, that heaviness has, uh, has come through into, uh, into men in modern society as well. But, you know, what I'm sort of doing up here and some of the work that I do is I actually help people learn that a lot of that is not their fault, you know, it's actually been just passed on to them and they can actually... Um, you know, make changes, which is quite empowering for them, and then they can start to take their own direction rather than the one that was sort of set upon them, I guess. I, that, that's an interesting point, right? So I've got this really close friend, also from South Africa. She's a psychiatrist in London, and she's in private there and covers the city of London. 
and she's never visited me in Australia. That's another sore point, but never mind. Um, you know, we, we, we always travel as Australians, right? But everyone says, oh, it's too far, too far. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> moving on from that one irritation. So we're in South Africa for yet another 50 years and we had a lovely wine farm and sitting outside in the air. And she says, um, I don't want to be funny, but, you know, I, I, need to ta- I need to tell you something about my Australian patients, people I see. And she sees the executives, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, mainly men. And she said, they come to me and they want to take the history. There's so much trauma mm. in, in their history. And they just sort of gloss over it or it's not even acknowledged as having this root cause to their depression and anxiety and alcohol use and whatever later in life. Yes. Yeah. It was a very interesting observation. And I have to say, you know, you listen to my, one of my heroes is Jimmy Barnes and on, on Q&A and he talks about growing up with alcoholism, domestic violence and promiscuity and um, damage from war with uh, PTSD absolutely unrecognised. Um, you know, you come back from war and you send to your regional areas or whatever with no support whatsoever. Yes. Yes, that's right, and um, it's really nice to hear you say that because there are people that um, that are you know have, have, have mastered uh, a lot of their lives, um, you know whether they're professional or not. Um, a lot of the stuff that happened earlier on has been pushed away, and um, I, I just believe that you know we we really need to be able to address that to be able to help set ourselves free in many ways because we we, we get stuck with those emotions which continually pop up. And then they can be diagnosed as depression or anxiety, you know, without actually even going deeper. Would you agree? This is this is one of the issues. So even in medicine, right, and I, and I write about this and I'm, I'm currently writing about this, it's about if we're not open about our own stuff, we hold things in, then we kill ourselves, you know. Trick, I mean, female doctors are significantly statistically... Um, more likely to kill themselves than their male counterparts, and they, again, much more than the general population. And we hold things in because we feel that, you know, stiff up the lip and we've, we've got to separate our, our personal stuff from our work stuff and people don't want to know about our internal stuff or if we do go for help, then somehow we'll be seen as an impaired person mm-hmm. not being able to work. And I, I, I try to break through this stigma and self-stigma is one of the worst stigmas yeah. around and actually it's, it's rubbish because people like the fact that you open and that enables them to be open as well so that's a big it's a big issue for me and it's not a weakness it's not a weakness at all yes do you know what like um the I suppose the, the the fear of going to the clinical system for support was something that I, I would I would not even go near for fear of being labelled or diagnosed or judged with something. Uh, you know, uh, I did go to a doctor in two thousand and seven, and it was a light bulb change for me. He said, "You can do two things: you can take pills or exercise." Uh, so I chose to exercise, and that moved me on. But but primarily, uh, all I was going there for was stress. You know, I was very stressed out from my job and I didn't know how to handle it. And, um, you know, I wasn't coping very well. And, and, you know, thankfully that doctor, he was just a GP, he gave me that guidance and I, st- I chose to, to, to take autonomy. 
And that's sort of, you know, helped me sort of to where I'm now. But when we do a men's circle, for example, you'll see like light bulbs pinging uh, with guys consistently. And, and, and that can actually help them uh, move forward independently, you know. And I just think uh, quite, quite, you know, uh, commonly now, Mark, we've actually like gone towards uh, a model of dependence rather than helping people become independent. Would you agree? Well, well, a couple of things you just raised there. Number one, I look at a more holistic approach, right? And and sometimes medication is useful, and you can exercise and take medication. Uh, it's not because because sometimes people feel, oh, if, uh, I'm going to get addicted to medication, or well, if I take a medication, just a crutch. Mm-hmm. Not if it's not if it's properly you know prescribed and then used in combination. Because sometimes people need to get to a point where they can exercise and look at their routines. Um, absolutely, of course, we look at non medical medication options first as a, as a way sometimes to engage someone and then look at how they carry on and get on. But in terms of in terms of the question just asked about dependence and resilience comes into this and but people I think use resilience in the wrong way resilience isn't about you know just having stuff piled onto you because you can you know continue like stretch like that stupid elastic band analogy <laughs> it's about maintaining connections maintaining self-care and knowing when to say no that's important mm. and so a I, I don't think it's a loss of independence being um, supported by people and asking for support, but any support should be geared towards you living more independently and taking control of the things that you can take control in, in your life. Yes, that, that's right. I, I agree. I think humans, are, we're, we're continually going to always need some form of support mechanism and community around us. You know, if you try and live separate from it all, that's when we start to fail, I guess. But, um, but primarily, uh, yeah, I think if you can bring tools and strategies in, into your life where you can develop some autonomy, um, it can be really helpful. And um, yeah, I just, I, I know my own, my own experience was, I was, I was quite fortunate, but uh, I do agree, um, you know, definitely there's, uh, there's need to, to be able to use chemical enhancement. It's, it's funny, like I, I speak to a lot of guys and they'll go uh, to seek support and they're, they're given medication or prescribed medic- medication without actually having any questions asked about, you know, the stuff we've discussed or what might be causing the depression or the anxiety or their diet or whatever, you know, it's just uh, handed out straight away. Do you think there's... Well, that's... Go ahead. No, sorry, that's, that's, sorry, that's exactly you're right. I mean, this is one of the issues, right? In, so again, the rural regional areas where GPs are often busy, or but even in the inner city, it happens like this. So you go to a GP and the GP has 10 minutes, you know, and then it's easier to prescribe something than look at a holistic approach because I don't have time. Yes. On one level, though, it's important to go to the GP because at least you can then get a mental health plan sorted to go and see a psychologist. The big thing is, and men specifically, don't really engage in primary care. That's a real problem. Mm. And so, sure, some GPs may give you medications, but especially, again, coming to the regional rural GPs, they've got a wealth of experience. They 
do much more than say their inner city counterparts. That's, you know, they do a generalist approach to things. And it can be very helpful if you look at different options. So if you're looking at a way of treating mood, there, there are four prongs I always talk about. Um, you know, medication can be one of them, but then the psychology, so go and speak to someone about your internal stuff and the external world and how it impacts and how you can work on strategies. Then it's the social, you know, I can't give a pill to somebody who's being beaten up at home and has nowhere to live, you know what I mean? So that, that has to be looked at as well. And that's where drug and alcohol use comes in. To never judge, people use self-medication as self-medication, but it can be more harmful and brings on its own issues. And the fourth one I talk about all the time, I'm big into gut health, by the way, mm. is the diet, sleep and exercise. And that all taken together is often a positive way forward. But a big thing is going for help in the first place. And then you talk to a mate, they can take you with them because people often ask me, how can I help my mates? You know, well, don't be judgmental. Be their support and take them somewhere so they can get input. I don't. I don't. I often say I don't care what input you get. Just go and talk to someone. Yes. Yep. That's right. Oh, I guess it, it must be frustrating for you uh, to as a as a clinician. Like basically, we have um, uh, lots of people that experience mental health problems. Uh, a lot of that is to do with gut health. You know, in general, I believe too. But at the same time, we're, we're constantly bombarding people with advertising to eat fast food. The food industry has a lot to answer for. You know, when I was at medical school in the 80s, there was one professor there who got castigated a bit because he was saying, people are talking about fat, right? Because that was a big thing we were taught. Fat is bad. Fat is bad. And so we went through decades of having all this fat-free diet thrown at us where, of course, you didn't read the small print where there's so much sugar. And so the sugar is the real problem. That is the double-edged sword sometimes. Of course, you know, we exhort people to eat healthily and, of course, it's a great thing to do, but people are often stuck. And so we've got to look. And again, it's even talking about men's health, right? So we acknowledge all these issues or whatever, but what do we do about it? Because being told that you need to eat healthily isn't helpful sometimes. You know that. Mm. But people will get stuck also with, um, you know, great diets are often expensive. They're not exactly cheap. So you've got to look at ways of tackling our type 2 diabetes issue Plus, in my world, in, in the mental health world, physical health is really important as well because you get often medication causes side effects and then you're in this wormhole of trying to get fit and healthy but you've got um, piling on the weight for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and that's, I think that's a big thing that we need to look at uh, absolutely importantly. Yes, agree. You know what, like... In my previous role that we sort of discussed before too, um, I was I was you know I wouldn't say disgusted but not far from it that, that we've we've got a health system which is um, you know supposedly trying to keep people healthy but then uh, in the next building is the uh, economics department which is doing what they can to generate revenue for the state and uh, and they're allowing um, you know these donuts and stuff to be <laughs> to be advertised and, and so forth you know around young people and um, and you know people in general to eat you know high sugar consistently you know and uh, 
there's not enough restriction around that. I've gone through the whole thing like you probably have where, you know, alcohol, sorry, um, cigarette advertising was banned and, and all that because they, they saw the consequences. Well, now we're seeing the consequences of sugar, but there's not much being done to, to, to reduce it or, you know, eliminate it at all. Yeah, they're looking at sugar taxes and things. And again, it's that balance, though, isn't it, of being... So often people will say, oh, well, you know, it's a nanny state and why are people trying to, you know, tell me what to do? But then my my response is, well, we've got speed limits and there are various things that, you know, we've acknowledged in primary care or, you know, in, in the health of a nation as being really important. And absolutely, we're all saying sugar is a real problem and we need to do something about that in the food industry. Yeah, mm, that's right. Yeah, if you look at the key economical drivers too, the sugar industry is a big, uh, big player in Australia, you know, and they've got a, a strong voice, and uh, as does the alcohol industry and so forth too. So um, until we can get, um, you know, Parliament uh, to be able to stand up to them, then we're not going to have, uh, you know, a lot of success when they're, they're sort of pushing pushing their weight, I suppose, you know, as well. Yeah, they're powerful lobbies, absolutely, but we, we need to look at that. But again... With people who are listening as well, yes, it's always good to be as healthy as we can, but I also say no shame or guilt. So my kids, you know, when we have them, we have pizza chips, and, you know, that's my night off, and that's great to do that every now and then. So, mm-hmm. that's right, you know, yeah. it's a, like a, it's a balance. And as you, you talk about yoga, I love, I finally started yoga. I don't know why I didn't earlier in life. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's that balance, isn't it? But no shame or guilt when you actually do have some days off and enjoy yourself because hey who, who doesn't need that at times that's true absolutely and yeah definitely to find that that little bit of a balance is is key rather than you know be, be too uh i suppose self-disciplined because sometimes when we're so strict and hard on ourselves it can be really poor for our mental health as well yes because it comes back to that self stigma you know people are so harsh to themselves most of the time in my sessions with my patients uh, the people come to for me for treatment I, I do joke sometimes i go yes i know i talked about the diet sleep and the exercise plan because sometimes they they don't want to come see me if they haven't done it i go no that's not the point <laughs> i must you're a headmaster then i went off the you know rails last week and i went out too much and i drank a bit too much and you know it's about just every now and then going hey Maybe I need a bit of a time out here, alcohol-free, for instance. Yes. Uh, we do fab fast and um, and, uh, and and look at a sort of more ho- holistic, healthy lifestyle for a while with support and make it fun. It's not about beating yourself up if you don't do it. Yeah, that's right. And also, uh, yeah, a lot of that does come back to our our conditioning too, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of our family drank consistently and we feel like we're letting people down when we try and <laughs> have some time off alcohol and that, and that sort of stuff, you know, because we we, we associate that with enjoyment and, um, yeah, we, we've just got to have those breaks. And I always say, listen to your body, it's smarter than you, you know. It actually gives you signs, but we just need to be able to be aware on how to read those signs. It is important, but actually coming with the alcohol, there's so many non-alcoholic, you know, options now. Um, and I've tried this a couple of my patients. I've gone, hey, you drink your beer. I'm telling you now, drink a few beers, and then you put a stubby over your 0% alcohol beer. First of all, you won't even taste the difference. And secondly, no one will know that you're not drinking beer, and then you're having a good time anyway, and then you're not hungover the next day. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible right. how you can shift things around a bit. <laughs> um, 
and break that. Because, in fact, it's so weird because I'm part of that Anglo culture, right? I mean, both sides of my family, I've got huge alcohol issues, mm-hmm. big, big alcohol issues. Yes. With various mental health stuff yeah. running through. And in my default in the past, and even now, but I drink a bit more. And so I go, oh, hold on. When I've noticed that, I go, hey, wake up call. What are you doing that for? It's having an impact on, on your life. And and it's <clears throat> and then you realize, you know, if alcohol in small quantities isn't bad for you, it's like when, you, when you're binging, right, and drinking too much. And then you go, well, when I'm socializing, I don't need that alcohol. I, actually, if I'm not drinking alcohol, I can still go out and have fun, drink, and have fun with my mates without then feeling awful the next day. That's a positive. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always a, a win, isn't it? Like when you wake up the next day and you feel better than what you probably would have if you had taken another choice. But if you do that consistently or regularly, then it just becomes part of what you do. And then you, you may not make the choice to drink because you know the consequences, I suppose. Yes, but but again, coming from a clinical perspective, I'm not one of those waggy finger do- doctors. You know, what's the point of that? <laughs> yeah. I, I never measure people's waists or do the beer. I think that's useless. I don't like doing any of that. It just makes people feel ashamed, yes. and I don't want to work like that. And that's not how I I, I operate. Yeah. And so you open about things. You go, oh, God, I drank a bit too much this weekend, but this week I'm going to really focus on a bit of health and then people can relate to that yeah awesome and and you know mark like we've been uh we've been sort of pushed down a highway of uh, being the same as everybody else too you know you've got to be a certain weight certain body type this that the other but everyone's unique and different you know and um if we can actually work with that then uh, i think we can actually start to open ourselves up to 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 be more positive and, and and having better mental well-being but you know i guess you know, coming through as a young bloke, everyone sort of had to be like uh, all the same pretty much, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, they never really appreciated uh, people's, um, you know, uh, individuality, I suppose. So that's that's actually, um, you know, improving, which is good. I was going to ask you about anxiety. I know it's something that you're pretty passionate, passionate about and you've probably struggled with a bit yourself. Um, what are some of the, I suppose, things that you have... Um, uh, around anxiety these days, which you sort of try and help people, um, you know, um, uh, work towards to be able to improve and maybe overcome it? Well, you, you know, I manage my anxiety. I mean, I've come to a point where I feel it's better managed. And it's, uh, you know, I've had it since 84, so night terrors. Um, my mother has anxiety. My grandmother has anxiety. It runs through my family as, long, as, to, as well as bipolar. Mm. alcohol and dementia that's one of my anxieties is dementia as you get older um, (laughs) and how you how you live a life that is part of of acceptance because that's really important in any of these conversations is you acknowledge things and it's not a weakness you go okay this is me i don't want to be short i don't want to be bald i don't want to have anxiety those are the sort of things that you have to sort of uh, try and more at peace with so that's important and then you look at okay what triggers are there for my anxiety and what can i do myself to try and control things as best i can and 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 the things that i mentioned sleep diet exercise those are so important as is looking at your substance use because at the time and especially for social anxiety which is absolutely very very common much it's underreported, actually. Um, 
people go out and then drink to try and cope with that. And of course, it helps short term. But the next day, boom, your anxiety is rearing its, its head. So when you get to the point where you change your lifestyle and the way you and you feel in control of that, that is actually a good point to reach. Mm. And I've re- I'm reaching that as I get older. Mm-hmm. There would have been some pretty strong moments. Uh, anxiety was taking control. Obviously, you as, a, as an individual coming through uh, with all the the changes that you had um, going on in your body, but also um, you know not being able to to be openly gay, uh, you know, in, in modern society. Did that trigger a bit of anxiety, you know, back in the day? I, it was mainly that, you know, you think, and I think back to when I first remember, and everyone in my book on anxiety, by the way, uh, we all agree on one thing, we didn't get help when we needed it when we were younger. That's a big issue, you know, and uh, talking about youth and adolescent stuff. Uh, it's a real problem in regional areas too, right? Um, I... It's 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 link it, yes the anxiety was about linking to the hostile world and the hostile world environment. It's not so much being gay; it's about people's response to it, and hiding and constantly thinking that you're going to be found out and people know that there's something wrong with you and that you're abnormal. That that's a big thing when you're growing up and one that a lot of people can relate to because it's very common mm. when you are different uh, and being being treated as different in a, in a world that isn't accepting of you. That's really hard, mm, yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. You know, I was doing a, uh, a presentation and um, some work at a school in Rockhampton the other day and um, there was a couple of um, young men that were transitioning um, and uh, in you know, maybe 15, 16, and, and the way they were accepted, uh, you know, with the teachers and with the school was really pleasing to uh, to see, you know. And I think we've actually come a, come a long way when, when we're able to, you know, uh, see that openly and, and with um, uh, with dignity, I suppose, yeah. I know, right? I mean, so, so I reconnected, so I'm 40 years out of school now, 1982, so bloody hell. <laughs> I'm getting a <laughs> old. Um, but about seven years ago, I reconnected with my school. I mean, I... I was a prefect and all that, but, you know, it was, I, I just think back at school and I go, bloody hell, it was awful and I just wanted to get away from it. <laughs> there are three of my teachers still there. It just shows you how young they were, right? Mm. And my biology teacher has become a really close friend of mine now and she was quite a committed Christian, linked to the Methodist church in the area, which I thought was quite you know, homophobic and anti-Catholic. And then school was, uh, growing up gay was awful in the 70s. But the school now, and I went and had tea with the headmaster. That's weird. I'm, I'm currently a person of high net worth compared to where I was at school, right? <laughs> the government co-ed school. It's a wonderful school. <laughs> and they've got gender-neutral toilets. Five years ago, the first trans student went to the final ball, and they've got an LGBTQ society. I'm going, what the hell am I in a parallel universe? And we're doing a – I'm going for my – Mom's 80th in June. I'm taking um, my boys for the first time to Africa. And, you know, they're going to have a full schedule there. But we're doing a documentary with the school. They're very excited. So growing up, it's called Illegally Gay. Growing up Illegally Gay. And students are going to interview me and we're going to do a sort of uh, how things have shifted in the last 40 years. So mm, pretty exciting. Amazing. That That is like so good to hear and you know geez 
Uh, everything you've been through has been, I suppose, um, you know, uh, happened for a reason to, to get to where we are now. You know, how terrible would life be if we were still back in those ages where, where you were once, but coming through and just how much things has, uh, has changed for the better and will continue to change for the better now that um, this sort of stuff's being embraced uh, more and more. And I don't know whether you're aware, but there's an ex-AFL player, um, an AFL coach by the name of Dean Lady, Laidley, who's um, now become Danny Laidley, and he's transitioning. And um, that was a huge thing for him in his late 40s to, to come out and do this, you know, coming from the, the masculine AFL world. But um, he is just, or she is just, you know, thriving in life now and, uh, and loving life and, and making a huge um impact uh, to be able to encourage people to be themselves and um, you know that's that's so good to see and um, you know I just feel feel so humble to be able to you know have open conversations now about this sort of stuff rather than um, you know be uh, I suppose in the stuck mindset that I once was years ago because I was just taught what I I was taught by my father and he was taught by what his father taught him but you know, I've been able to sort of break that cycle now, and I think um, you know, there's lots of people doing the same. Uh, that's quite incredible because even even with the sexuality, I mean, especially in football, it's a real problem, mm. uh, and there are not many players who've come out. So to come out as trans mm. is even you know more more difficult and incredible. So uh, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's great to see and. Um, yeah, I just really uh, admire, um, admire him or her now and, uh, and certainly some of the uh, NRL players that have done the same, uh, uh, just, uh, you, you know, and just they basically carried a lot of heaviness uh, years ago because they were just doing things that they thought they had to do, but they were able to sort of move through and, and be themselves, which I think is, you know, absolutely tremendous, whereas, you know, go back a few generations and that wouldn't have happened. No, and, and so more people that who actually come out soon with mental health issues, there's sexuality and gender. It's hard because you always feel like a bloody ambassador in one level. You know, sometimes you go, I go to dinners and I say I'm gay and then you get asked the questions. You go, I just want to have fun now and stop asking me. But actually, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a friend of mine says, oh God, when Mark goes to dinners, he mentions his husband within the first minute and not that i think i'm the butcher's man on earth but you know you always get asked about your wife or your girlfriend that's the natural default position still so yeah. i just say i talk about my husband and then people are know where i'm coming from right but you always got to think about these things so why do i overthink that's part of my anxiety hello anxiety um but i'd rather be an ambassador than not being able to be talked about and hidden and because we've all been there, right? Yes. So <clears throat> once those um, closet doors are open, there's not no, no going back. So that's 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 part of the good thing, I suppose. Just one thing with with anxiety. Do you think meditation's helpful? You know, I have tried different medications. Um, it's it's hard because every now and then, it, my sleep is really affected, and I can be lying there. Being horrible to myself because you know I hear the possums on the roof and you know that it's not a squad of people coming to shoot you, <laughs> but <laughs> the anxious brain is telling you otherwise. That sort of emotional response, and I try the breathing and I try this and everything. And I go, uh, I, we didn't have the conversation, but my potty mouth. I try not to swear too much during yeah, this can. conversation yeah, with you, fine. but I swear a lot. Happy I go FFS, you know. Okay, I'm going to take a sleeping tablet now. So every now and then. 
it, it, it is useful. And I have found medication useful at times. Um, I don't take regular medication. I have a, you know, I exhort people to take and I, I, I go, yes, sometimes it's useful, but then I take it for a while and then I try other things. And what I found the most helpful for me is absolutely getting my routines right. I talk about routines all the time. And when I sleep better, and I don't eat uh, just before I go to bed, and I don't watch the horror of things that I love watching, like, you know, The Last of Us and the zombie flicks, um, then, hey, big surprise, I sleep better. And when I sleep better, <laughs> I get up earlier, and then I'm not rushing around. And that's because that's a big part of my anxiety is then being late and my, my time management. Yes. And then that makes me a really bad driver. Uh, and then I arrive somewhere in a state. And so all those things you can go backwards to and go, hmm, a lot of that is about lifestyle yes. and shifting lifestyle stuff. Yeah, amazing. It's interesting because the uh, the question that I asked was, um, do you think meditation's helpful? They're pretty closely linked, that's for sure. <laughs> so, okay. So, coming to meditation, you know, that is something, and I, I'll say I was invited to uh, just quickly the Art of Living Foundation. They invited me to a meeting. This is pre COVID, obviously. And we went, it was at the Kiribili RSL in North Sydney. And there was a Swami on stage, and I sit there, and sometimes I go, oh, God, this isn't for me, you know. I'm, you know so every now and then it's that. You get stuck in the past and how you brought up, right? <laughs> yeah. And and this guy, was he just talked. He was just talking on stage, and he said, okay, guys, we're going to do a meditation exercise now. And I went, oh, here we go. Uh, in my head, switched off the lights, and then he started just talking, and we were breathing, focusing on breathing, and someone's mobile went off, and everyone laughed, and he went, you know what, meditation isn't about clearing your mind, because that's what I often think. I can't clear my mind, it's too bloody cluttered. <laughs> and he said, it's about just letting things in and breathing and being at one with your body. Mm. And we did it for 15 minutes. I said it was it was wonderful. Mm. And I try, though, meditation for me is better when I'm doing yoga. So I do a yoga meditation practice rather than, I still find meditation hard, actually. But I, it's, again, it's a goal, right? So I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, but it definitely, definitely helps with a whole lot of things, including heart rate, which is so linked to anxiety. So that physical calming or grounding of the body helps the grounding of the mind. Yeah. Um, and it actually works, yeah. Definitely, the, the the physical practice of yoga, you know, the asanas uh, are all about opening up the body and getting the meridian channels in the body working in sync, and that helps the mind settle. And when you come to sit still, if you do, then that, that just helps your mind become more more calm and balanced, I suppose. And uh, I just found, for me personally, to be able to you know use the physical body to settle the mind has been. Um, been really helpful because I, I like you you know really struggle with anxiety for a long time but I just seem to be able to manage it better now you know and um, um, yeah it's just a, a journey for, for everyone individually but um, I, I think you know if we can be more connected to our body and what our body is sort of you know wanting or needing or trying to do that can help um, settle anxiety down a bit more as well. It does work, but I'll tell you a little funny thing. I mean, we're having a heavy conversation, but, you know, humor is also so important. <laughs> you know, if you laugh, not at someone, it's with them, um, you breathe better. And when you breathe better, your anxiety improves. So it's actually yeah. quite a 
nice practice too. But I was doing, we did a lot of Zoom interviews, you know, during lockdown and stuff. We were sitting in, our, <clears throat> in the mountains. It was a nice, calm sort of environment. And John, my husband, was sitting next to me at the table out of view. But I was presenting to um, HarperCollins is my publisher. And there were like 400 people online talking about my book and anxiety. And and was open to questions. And this young woman asked me, so Dr. Cross, you didn't tell me, you didn't tell us, you know, what do you do in the morning? So I was on, bang on about, you know, stretching and routines. And then I said, well, I wake up and I try and breathe and work on my practice for the day and stretch. And John was <laughs> sitting next to me, spat out his wine. He went, no, you fucking don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on live, and it was just nervous. And everyone just started laughing. And I laughed. I said, look, it's, it's aspirational, right? There you go. We've got to focus on these things, but no shame or guilt for not doing it. <laughs> so there you go. So just, in case everyone thinks that I've got it perfectly down pat, no, I do not. Yeah. But we're working on it. Amazing. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah, which is at that period of time, it was a tricky period too, wasn't it? So, uh, um, you know, I certainly uh, you need to forgive yourself for not, uh, not following through with your daily practice, that's for sure. I know, but when you do, you feel better, right? So, you know, <laughs> you do, yeah, that's it. The, the mind is a negative. So the negative mind is not a, is a powerful force, and you've got to just knock it in the head sometimes and go, no, no, no. Is that, um, I haven't read the book. It is a six-second rule. Um, I read the synopsis. Basically, you're struggling with motivation because motivation is a real problem. And people often get this confused too. People with anxiety, and I do this, sometimes need to lie down. You need, you need to just lie down or just you know, decompress. And then people will look and think you're lazy or go, hey, you've got to go and do all these things. But sometimes that's a useful time out. Mm. But the six-second rule, you count down from six to one and then you just do it so you don't overthink it. Yeah. And that's quite nice. Every now and then I do that and go, okay, boom, I'm doing it without – because the overthinking brain in anxiety is not your friend. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it takes over, doesn't it? It's interesting you talk about the neutral mind, like – Coming from a yogic perspective, um, we have the neutral mind, the positive mind, and the negative mind. And, and, and my my practice that I do with meditation is about sort of tapping into the neutral mind, you know, because my negative mind will dominate too, you know, like it does with most of us. But I suppose just being able to let go and and uh, and be able to surrender to, to that and, and just see what, what happens, then and things usually come back to balance again. But... Yeah, my, my mind will be at, speed, uh, be at speed quickly and it'll think about all the bad stuff, but I think we can, we can you know, maybe, maybe sort of change that or flip it around if we, uh, we put in a bit of work too, I, I guess. No, that's important. And, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy or dialectical behavioural therapy, these are all sort of mindful-focused therapies. And mindfulness, it's taken a while for me to work out what that means. But for me, it's about just being in the present and focusing on what you're doing mm. and really just being there. And that really helps calm things down or ground things um, for me and for a lot of people. Mm. Absolutely. Hard thing to do, but the more we can come back to it, the better. <laughs> you know. Yes. It, uh, it helps. Mark, uh, I've been really grateful uh, for the chat. I wanted to know if people want to reach out to you and, and look at your work, what's the best way uh, to do that? Um, well, there are a couple of ways I've got. Um, well, actually, there's a documentary on SBS, Beneath the Stigma, that's on SBS On Demand. That's finishing at the end of the month. Um, that's myself and 12 people from my book on anxiety talking about 
stigma and how you cope with anxiety. Um, and my website, if people want to connect there, is drmarkx.com. Mm-hmm. And I also run a page called The Anxious Shrink on Facebook. Um, I, I was doing podcasts for two years, well, over two years, every Thursday night, I've taken a break because of the book. But it's um, there's an anxious shrink group and about 700 people, a lot of my patients, people find uh, they connect and chat and support each other. Because for me, it's about community and support mm. and connection. Amazing. That's that's really, really good. I'll definitely look them up. Um, but yeah, that's, that's great that you've got those networks there and, and people can, you know, sort of uh, get some advice outside the, um, the clinical system or, you know, going to you independently, I suppose. So that's... That's really great. Yeah, so it's not like individual advice, but people can ask questions and then they forum people chat and, um, you know, if you'll ask a question on the group, then I'll log in and answer it and things like that. So Yeah, awesome. Uh, good on you. I'm really, really grateful for the chat. The best yet to come, I reckon, for you. And, uh, you know, uh, you really need to be proud of uh, everything you've gone through and where you are now. And, you know, I look forward to... Hopefully meeting you one day and, um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing the rest of the, the journey, um, you know, for Mark and, and that moving forward. And I don't, don't suppose you want to work forever. What are your plans, uh, you know, for retirement when you, when, you, when you get there in 20 years? <laughs> well, you know, we've got two sons coming through now. It seems to like skiing and very expensive pursuits. So I don't think I'll be hanging out my shingles for a while yet. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think psychiatrists quite res- retire. We sort of... I want to eventually get into more non-clinical work and like awesome. presentations and what I'm doing, um, but also uh, go on mental health review tribunals and be, you know, an advocate for people yeah. uh, on the uh, under the mental health act. That's a big thing for me, um, and continue writing. So yes, I definitely keep in touch, and you're doing some great work too. Thank you, Aaron, for you know inviting me and. Um, yeah, I'll be in contact about my book on the mental health system. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I hope people that, uh, that, are, that, are, that are looking for something good to read to, to jump on and grab your book on anxiety. What was the other one? You've written another one as well, co-authored another one? Uh, the, the, the first one was Changing Minds linked to the Changing ABC Minds. TV series uh, of the same name that I was yeah. the lead psychiatrist in. Amazing. And then, but anxiety is more personal I'm my, with a bit of my history and stuff. That's why I avoided writing it for two years, but hey, we finally got there. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll be definitely trying to uh, drag a copy in myself and have a read of that, so I really appreciate it. No, that's great. Thanks so much, Aaron. Cheers. Bye for now.